Well, as you may know, maybe you didn't even notice, uh, I was away the past two Sundays on vacation with my wife. And I want to say it is sort of great to be back with you all. So I say sort of because my wife and I were in the Bahamas. And uh, we enjoyed our time there, and uh, we, we missed our kids a lot, but we enjoyed our time away as well. And so listen, as much as I enjoy being with you here in the middle of winter, I like being with my wife in the Bahamas even a little bit more. And so, hey, it's good to see you all, though, but I do miss the warmth and the sun and the beach. Now, I want to start out this morning with an article that I read that's titled Ridiculous Family Fights. Have any of you had a ridiculous family fight before? Man, you all are good. No one's raising their hand. Okay, uh, so people had the opportunity to share silly fights that they were involved in with their family on Twitter. And uh, I grabbed some of those, and here are a few of my favorites. So here's the first one. My mom refuses to use an electric kettle and is adamant about stovetop boiled water being faster and better for tea. So my brother and I bought a kettle and we raced her for the eternal bragging rights like the competitive lunatics we are. Any of you are all, uh, all stovetop boilers? Anyone out here? No? There's a few. Okay. All right. I need to bring my electric kettle over to your house. Here's another one. In our 30s, my twin sister described to me an incident that happened in high school that she'd never forgiven me for. It occurred on the balcony of of our cafeteria. Our cafeteria didn't have a balcony. It was a dream, and she'd been upset for 15 years. (laughs) I have a feeling she's gotten confused with High School Musical that has that nice balcony there. My, uh, me and my parents and sister had a very lengthy fight about my wedding, which sounds normal until you find out that I'm not engaged. In fact, I don't even have a boyfriend. All right, so they're fighting over something that may happen in the future. We're only allowed to refer to this as the downstairs couch because no one can agree if it's green or blue. And this person thinks it's green. So let's, uh, let's take a vote here. How many of you would say it's blue? Any blue fans? Okay, any green fans here? All right, so green wins. My, brother often argue, my brothers often argue with each other on who is the ugly one between them both, but they're both identical twins. <laughs> a few more here. Uh, my family and I once had a huge argument over whether you put socks, then underwear on, or underwear, then socks. And the argument went on for a whole month. I was going to do a question, a a little quiz survey here, but my wife told me not to, so (laughs) we're going to move on. So this past Christmas Eve, my, uh, this is funny, my aunt called my brother's dog ugly, My sister-in-law replied that her granddaughter was ugly, and so my aunt uh, punched her. you got to defend that dog, right, and that that, that, um, child. The first time I had Easter at my wife's parents' house, we made cookies for all of her nephews, and to avoid making a mess, we ate them outside. My father-in-law found out and started yelling at us because he didn't want us getting crumbs all over his grass. All right, two more here. This is, I like this one. 
For years, my dad has sworn he needs glasses, but my mom says he's just not trying hard enough. And I see some of you all are the same. You're not trying hard enough. Last one. My mom can't decide what to do with dad's cremated remains. She thinks we should get a a big urn and everyone who dies goes in the urn. The last one alive wins the urn. That's one way to deal with it, right? It's problem solving. How many of you would agree that even the best families have arguments every now and then? That's just, it just happens when, when people, even great people, live together. Now, likewise, how many of you would agree that even the best Christians get in arguments every now and then? Again, when you live life together, it just happens. And so with this in mind, we're beginning a new series through the very small, small book of Philemon. Did I say it right? Philemon. And Philemon is only one chapter, and it's 25 verses. And so, as we're going to see, it was written because Paul, the author, was writing to Philemon, and it was about an issue that arose between Philemon and another Christian. And I, don't, uh, I do want to warn you, though, that I grew up calling Philemon Philemon. I, I don't know if no one just didn't know, if anyone around me didn't know, or if they thought poorly of me and just didn't want to correct me. But my son made it very aware that I was saying it wrong this past, these past couple months. And so I'm just warning you that my old nature will probably slip out at some point during the next three weeks. And I will say it, as my son says, incorrectly. But Philemon is not one of those books that we just gravitate to in the Bible, right? Does anyone just wake up in the morning and say, I feel led to read Philemon? Not very often. Not probably about as often as you feel led to read Leviticus, right? And so as I studied it, though, this small little letter there, I found that there's some great principles that we can pull out of it from what Paul's saying. And then we can apply these to our own life and learn how we can deal with other people when we have conflict, when we have issues with other Christians in the church and even outside the church, in our family and other places. And so I want to begin by reading our passage. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. And so let's go ahead and put that on the screen there and take a look. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, to and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the end of our passage. So you may be wondering now, why in the world are we spending an entire sermon on just a greeting in a letter? Why are we looking at just these first three verses? Because uh, I don't normally do that. When I did Romans, I didn't spend it just on the greeting. When I did a lot of other letters, Galatians, I didn't start, just spend an entire sermon on the greeting. But to understand this letter, you really need to see the, the whole picture and understand the people that are involved in it. And so let's look briefly at the various people involved in this letter. And so first of all, let me read verse 1 again. Paul 
a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. And so the letter is dictated by Paul, and most likely, and this is the Apostle Paul, most likely it was then transcribed by Timothy. It's possible Timothy was also just there with him, and someone else transcribed it. And then next we see him say to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker in Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and this church in your house. So Philemon lived in the town of Colossae. This is the, the, when you write to Colossae, it's the Colossians. In fact, Paul wrote this letter in Colossians at the same time, and most likely sent them both together at the same time to the, to the Colossians. And so we see that uh, it was to uh, Aphia, to Philemon, and Aphia was most likely his wife. And then we see Archippus, who was most likely their son, adult son. And then he says, uh, we also see that they had a house that was big enough, these three, for a church to meet in. Now, they didn't have massive churches back then, but still, it was a big enough house for the church to meet in. So most likely, this family was wealthy. And we also know that they had slaves, because we're going to see that this is in discussion over uh, Onesimus, the slave. And then notice that Philemon is mentioned as a beloved fellow worker. And every time the word fellow worker is used there in the New Testament by Paul, every time except for one, it's referring to a close friend. And so later in the letter, we're going to get a clue that Paul was even involved in Philemon's, uh, in his conversion, putting his faith in Jesus Christ. And so Philemon here is a devout Christ follower, and he's most likely a very close friend of Paul's. Now, interestingly, these three people here, we see uh, from church tradition, not from the Bible, but from church tradition, uh, Philemon and his wife were later uh, stoned to death by a mob, and then Archippus was stabbed to death during the reign of Nero. So that's the group that we're looking at. You may be wondering now, okay, didn't you just talk about conflict? They all look like they're getting along just swell, don't they? So where's the conflict? And that's where the other person comes in. The one person that we haven't mentioned, and that is Onesimus. He's not going to get mentioned by name until verse 10. And so at some point, Onesimus, who was a slave, must have stolen some of Philemon's property or money and then escaped. And then, so he ran away. It's possible he just grabbed it and ran away in the middle of the night. It's also possible that he was sent out on a a business trip and just never returned. Just took what he had and made a new life for himself. So we don't know what he stole, but most likely it was pretty significant. And he used it then to make a new life for himself, either in Ephesus, which is Ephesians, or in Rome. And so... In a way, I picture the story of Onesimus before all the letter is taking place as sort of like the the prodigal son story that Jesus tells about. So Onesimus gets some money. He gets some new freedom. He runs away, and he just lives life most likely. And at some point during this time, he must have run empty. Maybe not financially, but at some point, he realized that the the life he was living was not the life he wanted to live. And he connected then with Paul, either before or after that time. 
and eventually, through Paul's ministry, put his faith in Jesus Christ. And so now, he is a changed person. He's a changed person, and after a while with Paul, him and Paul decide that it is time for him to go back to Philemon. A slave going back to Philemon. Now, this was no doubt a very uh, scary time for Philemon. Because even though uh, slavery in the, the New Testament time in, in the Roman, uh, Roman Empire was different than how we see American slavery, uh, it was not as, it was not as uh, forever. They had opportunities to buy themselves out, and there's rules in place for them. But at the same time, uh, it was dangerous for a slave to run away and come back. In fact, you could be executed for doing that. In fact, around the same time, I, re- I read about a non-biblical account. This is by a historian named Tac- Tacitus. Uh, he wrote about a wealthy Roman who was murdered by one of his 400 slaves. And so the prosecutor then worked in court and attempted to get all 400 of the slaves executed. The prosecutor won, and all 400 were publicly executed. So, so this is the situation that Onesimus is coming back into. In fact, one pastor writes, In the hands of a cruel master, Onesimus could have been subjected to a cruel death. So before I go any further, before we start to talk about our passage, I I can't ignore the obvious here. And so we're going to take a small tangent and ask the question, why in the world would Paul send someone back into slavery? I mean, after all, this is, uh, th- th- these are Christians here who love each other. He's now a brother Christian. So why is he saying go back into slavery? It's different type of slavery than we know, it, but why would he send them back there? And so I want to give you just a few thoughts. There's whole books written on this topic, but let me just give you three brief thoughts here. First of all, the Bible is full of admonitions to love those around us. And so we are called as Christians to love our neighbors, to love our spouse, to love our kids, and even, even to love our enemy. And so Christians are to treat each other with love and respect. And that would instantly rule out any kind of slavery that we know it, particularly from the, the, the time of our recent history in America. Because it's not loving to be cruel to people and to treat them like property. Second, slavery in the Roman Empire, was more like indentured servitude, as I mentioned before. So during the time, slaves could, could earn money and then buy themselves out, buy themselves their freedom. They could also choose to, to live with them permanently. So having said that, though, we have to remember that God is far more concerned about your heart than your outward position. Think about this. Just a cursory glance at the Old Testament or New Testament will show you that most of the people that followed God were put into situations that were not ideal for them. That God led them into places, to people, into positions, even into slavery, like Joseph. And so Noah, God says, go build a boat. And yet there was no water around. His friends mocked him. He was treated poorly until, until, that is, the water came. 
David, God says, you're going to be king. What he mentioned at the time was that there's going to be a long period between not being king and being king. And he was going to run for his life a lot of times. The current king was going to try to kill him. He was going to have to live in caves and do all these things until he actually became king. And even when he became king, it wasn't going to be a piece of cake then either. Abraham, God says, follow me. Abraham's probably wondering, uh, where do I follow you? And God says, I'll tell you where. Just follow me. Okay. Um, God, is it going to be safe? And if God had answered something like that, he would have said, no. No. In fact, Abraham went into some very scary situations, so scary that he even tried to give his wife away to save his own life. And I could go on and on. Not even mentioning that Jesus came here, not for his own comfort. God sent him for what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And he didn't come to be celebrated in that sense, to be standing up there as king and be like, hey, look at me, I'm awesome. No, he came and he was treated poorly and he was later crucified. And so these people here that we look at in the Bible... Devout followers of God did not have life in in a wonderful way as we might see it. So all this to say that just because Paul sent him back into uh, slavery doesn't mean that he supported it. So it doesn't mean that he supported it. Perhaps he was just following the will of God. Maybe he knew that Philemon was going to treat him kindly. I don't know. But We do know that God is far more concerned with our hearts than our outward positions. All right, so let's go ahead and take a a step back into the passage now and examine what's going on after looking at the greeting. Paul has just sent back a runaway slave to his master who is now a Christian. He's put his faith in Jesus. And over the next 22 verses that we're not going to be looking at today, Paul's going to make a case for why Philemon needs to be treating Onesimus kindly and as a brother in Christ. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at Paul's argument for treating Onesimus as a brother, treating him kindly. And each week of the three weeks, we're going to look at one principle that Paul brings up in the passage And we're going to see how that applies in their situation. But then we're going to take a step back and look at how it applies to Christians today as well. So as we're going through difficult times in our church, as we're going through difficult times in our Christian family, as there's Christians other places that that we run into that we have disagreements with, or maybe one person hasn't even done a quote-unquote sinful thing, you just disagree on it. How do you deal with those kinds of things? And so today, I want to go ahead and bring up the first principle from the passage, from these first three verses, and that is, uh, so how do we deal with conflict in other issues among Christians? And that is, principle one, know who you are and who others are in Christ. Know who you are and others are in Christ. Harper's Magazine from December of 2010, talks about a man named Gary Matthews. And Gary Matthews is from Allegheny County, County, uh, Pennsylvania, and he was 44 years old at the time of writing. 
And Matthews petitioned the court to have his name legally changed to Boomer the Dog. Boomer the Dog. In his petition, Matthews stated, I've always been known as Boomer the Dog by friends in the community for more than 20 years. I want to bring my legal name in line with that. Now, sadly, the judge didn't agree. Oh, judges, right? He denied the name change request, arguing that it would cause a lot of confusion. So the judge gave an example about what if there was a serious car accident? And if Boomer the dog calls in about a serious car accident and the dispatcher asks, what's your name? And he says, I'm Boomer the dog. Then the judge says that most likely it would, it would be thought of as a prank call. And so the judge finishes by saying, although the petitioner apparently wishes it were otherwise, the simple fact remains that he is not a dog. Not a dog. What I'm getting at is that identity is important. But going even deeper, your spiritual identity is important as well. So how you see yourself and how you see others will affect how each other lives and how you treat each other. And so this is immensely important for Paul, and it's no doubt why he brings up in this greeting that these names and points out that he is a brother in Christ. Now, Paul's not just dealing with friends here. He's not just dealing with brothers, uh, with, with, with a non-Christian brother. He's dealing with brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he's dealing with fellow workers in the kingdom cause. And so this makes a huge difference because knowing that we have a shared identity in Christ leads us to say it's, it's no longer what's best for me, it's what's best for the kingdom. When it comes to dealing with other people, we need to make sure that we understand who we are in Christ and who they are in Christ. And I want to show you a short video. Hopefully this one will work to help you, uh, help you understand what I'm talking about from a sort of a humorous perspective. And so we're going to see former quarterback Eli Manning of the New York Giants. Uh, he goes undercover and he tries out for football at Penn State University or Penn State, whatever it's called. And so let's go ahead and uh, watch this video. I'm at Penn State University, a.k.a. Walk On You. I think I need a little backstory. How about this? How about my name's Chad Powers. I'm a substitute teacher and part-time carpenter, and I get to walk on and try out for my favorite team. It was finally time to make Chad's walk-on dreams a reality. All right. How are you doing? Hi, how are you? Chad Powers. Bro, he is not a freshman. He's this kid. He definitely looks like he could do something. What's up, pal? Chad Powers. Paris. Paris? Nice to meet you. you nervous? A little bit. Yeah. Nerves are good. Nerves are good. That's right. How many receivers we got? Probably 60, 65. I don't know. That was back about seven years ago, so I don't know. <laughs> Things might change, you know? <laughs> Let's go, Chad. Here we go, baby. Think fast, run fast. Think fast, run fast. 
Fast chat, fast chat. You said it, Parrish. This is for you, baby. Think fast, run fast. Think fast, run fast. Five, four, nine. Five, four, nine. Five, four, nine? When's the last team you played on? I was homeschooled, so I never played ball. Really? Pickup ball. Watch a lot of film, though. Love that. My mom was my coach. Mom was what? Mom was my coach and my teacher. You get good grades? No. <laughs> Tough teacher? She wasn't very smart. She's a good coach, though. Look. Say go! Ooh, right in the chest. Gonna leave a mark on that one. She's gonna have a bruise after that one, Ferris. You see her saying? Come on, Chad. Good anticipation, man. Powers, sign the Chad Powers guy. Is he good? I think I see something in him. Yeah. Chad Powers, you're ineligible. Oh. Come on up. That mean I didn't make the team, coach? No, you did not. It's okay. Oh, oh man. Oh, man. Come on. I thought I had it, boys, but, you know, I'm sorry. No, I'm, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just a, I'm just a 41 year old just wants to play ball, man. I'm just trying to get back out there. We got to play some ball. We had you already. We had him already. We had him already. I got my COVID here. No, man. So. No, but I appreciate y'all uh, working with y'all today. Y'all running man, DBs, everybody. So y'all did great. Appreciate you know, let me try out with y'all. It was a lot of fun. Now I uh, edited this down from 15 minutes down to just three minutes. You didn't get to see everything. But did you notice how at the beginning everyone was looking at him saying, who in the world is this guy? This old looking guy who's trying to walk on. And then as they started seeing that he could throw really well, they started paying a little more attention to him, being like, oh, that, that guy's pretty good. And then at the end, when he takes off the stuff there, and they see its famous quarterback, Eli Manning, now all of a sudden they're smiling, and they, they're like, wow, that's someone famous there. The way we see people impacts how we act around them. The way we see people impacts how we interact with them and what we even think of them. And so let's look at this idea from our passage in two ways. As Paul's talking about their identity and his. And so in Christ, this is the first part, in Christ, you are not a servant. Sorry, you are the servant. You are not the master. So it's easy for us to think, oh, you, you know, I'm in charge of me. It's me. It's all me. It's about me. And when you do that, not only will that cause issues for you, but that'll cause issues with other people as well. But Paul begins by saying, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus. That's the only time that he says prisoner for Jesus in one of his introductions. But as I told you from the writing, though, actually, maybe I didn't mention it. He was writing from prison. He was in prison, either in Rome or Ephesus. And no doubt, as he's writing to Philemon, he has this in mind that he's a prisoner 
And then he also knows that he's writing to Philemon about a slave. So it's sort of very fitting in this situation that he gives himself, he lists himself as a prisoner. But notice who he says he's a prisoner for. Not the people in charge, not Nero. He says he's a prisoner for Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 1, 1, verse 1, he calls himself, as in, in the introduction, he says, servants of Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 1, 1, he calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle is simply one who is sent out by God. And so even though in all his letters, he, he's really, he's writing from a position of authority. He's one of the most uh, head Christians of that time. Everyone looked up to him. But make no mistake, even though Paul's writing from authority, he never saw himself as in charge. He never saw himself as the head guy. He was living as a servant and as a prisoner of God and for God. God sent him out. He didn't do that on his own. And this impacts how he treats himself and how he sees himself, but also how he treats others. I was reading an article about a water bottle, uh, water bottles that are being sold at Costco. Currently, uh, at least according to this article, it may have changed since then, uh, water bottles in the vending machine only cost 25 cents. The same bottle, you take that same bottle and you move it to a supermarket. It's then going to cost either 50 cents or probably a dollar nowadays. If you ordered that same bottle at a restaurant, you bump up the price to $2 or $4 or more. Let's say you move it then to a hotel. And then it's going to be 3 4 or $5. Let's then move it to an amusement park or a theater or the airport. And it may be 5 or $6 or more. The bottles and the content doesn't really change. It's a bottle of water. And so what changes is really just the location. And so I want to ask you all, where do you see yourself in spiritual terms? Do you consider yourself sort of like a, a Costco Christian? Or do you see yourself in Christ? Because listen, if you are in Christ, you're not worth 25 cents. Christ has made you and deemed you invaluable. He loves you. And he wants to use you. And so in order to do that, you must submit to him and let your value come from him, not from what you do. This leads to the second point, though, since God sees us as valuable. He also sees other Christians as valuable as well. So in Christ, others are fellow workers. Our fellow workers. He says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So did, did you notice the titles that he's giving every single person? He says, Timothy is our brother. He says, Philemon is a beloved fellow worker. Uh, Apphia is a sister in Christ. And then Archippus is a fellow soldier. So listen, the titles that these people have are not ones that Paul gave them. These are ones that Paul just used based on what 
God has given them. And so in Christ, you have a new identity, but also in Christ, others around you have a new identity as well. In Christ, you are part of his family, but you are also working with others in his family as well. So let's be honest for a moment. It's sometimes, sometimes, possible to see some Christians as annoying, isn't it? They can be annoying. And, uh, you know, sometimes our Christian spouse can annoy you or you can disagree with them. Sometimes your Christian kids or co-workers and even Christians in the church, they, they disagree with you. Listen, I can't tell you how many times others in the church have been annoyed by me. Me, the sweet, sweet pastor. <laughs> I annoy people. So, so it happens among Christians. And so it happened to Paul as well. And during this particular situation, we're going to see next week that, that Paul's going to have a big ask for his friend Philemon. But here in verses 1 to 3, he lays the foundation of how he's beginning the conversation, not from a point of authority saying, Philemon, this is what you have to do, but from a position of humility, recognizing that they are all workers in the same work there, in the same kingdom, that they're all working together with one purpose, and that the Christians, as together there, are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The men, I want to remind you that you are brothers in Christ working together for one purpose. Women, you are sisters in Christ working together with that same purpose. Young folks, you are fellow soldiers in the mission that God has given us. So no matter who you are, if you are in Christ, then you are part of his family and you have a new identity and a mission from him. I want to close with this story here. Christian author Terry Wardle tells the story of from his uh, childhood. Terry had this hand-me-down, fix-it-up, blue, big blue girl's Schwinn bike. And one day, he's a preteen, one day his mom finally let him ride it outside of his neighborhood. So he was excited. So he goes out of the neighborhood, biking away on his girl's bike, and he heads over the train tracks, and then he begins to go over this little bridge that goes over a creek. But as he begins to cross the creek, he notices that at the other end, there's four teenage boys there blocking the entrance or the exit. So he tries to pass by, but they roughly grab the handlebars of the bike, sort of bring them to a quick stop. Now they asked them, they said, uh, where do you think you're going? And he knew right then that those older boys were trouble. So then another one of the four boys asks, what's your name? And he answered in his sort of high-pitched, pre-adolescent, quivering voice, he said, "Uh, Terry Wardle. And suddenly the boys grew quiet. And another one then asked after a moment, are you related to Tom Wardle? And uh, he wasn't 
closely related to him, but he decided that this was a good time to say he was. He was a cousin. So he said he was, and the boys immediately backed off. And one of the boys started straightening his shirt, and he said, hey, we were, we were just funning you. And no harm, you're, you're a great kid. And if anyone ever picks on you, let us know, and we'll take care of you. And so he went on. Now let me ask you, what made the difference there? Apparently, in town, everyone knew of the star defensive end on the high school football team, Tom Wardle. And so when they saw the relation between the two, they knew that they didn't want to mess with little preteen Terry. And listen, church, when you know the relation between you and God, you should and you will see yourself differently. You're not going to want to mess with yourself because you have a relation with the king. But likewise, when you know and recognize the relation between others and God, you're going to see them differently and treat them differently. And that right there is the first step to resolving conflict and issues. See them for who they really are. And so I want to challenge you to do that today. I want to challenge you that over the next few weeks as we dive more into this subject to make sure you come every week and let's learn how we can more biblically and in a godly way deal with other people that are in our family. Let me close. I already said close, so can I do a little epilogue here? (laughs) If you are not in Jesus Christ, then you're not part of his family. If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you're not in that family. And listen, if if you're here, you know that, that, that we Christians are not too impressive, but being in the family of God is everything. And so I want to encourage you that if you've never done that today, to put your faith in him, to call out to him in the quietness of your own heart as we pray and as we sing in just a moment and ask him to be your Lord and Savior. And if you will do that, you will be given a new identity and you will be changed forevermore. Let's pray together and worship team, you can come on up.